Welcome to the First Apostolic Church Podcast. Our church mission is to love as God loves, showing compassion to every soul, thus winning those souls and equipping them to be sent out to plant and to harvest. Thank you for joining us today, and we hope that you are blessed by today's podcast. Lesson three of being good at being angry. So let's go back to our base verse where we've started out um, our springboard verse for each week, Ephesians 4, 26 and 27. Be ye angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath, neither give place to the devil. If we can go to God in prayer, I'm going to ask Bishop, would you pray for this tonight, Bishop, if you don't mind? Amen. You can be seated tonight. So I'm going to recap. I think most of you have been here for the first two, but just in case, let me summarize and recap what we've done so far. So I'm going to run through. You might say, hey, Sister McGee, you're repeating a few things you said last week or the week before, but you know, God told Moses to rehearse some things in the children of Israel's ear, and sometimes we need to hear things again. So I'm just starting off and just giving you a quick summary of the last two weeks. Week one, we learned that anger is not a sin, it's just an emotion, a combination of emotions, really. Two, that the origin of anger resides in the nature of God, mainly his love and his holiness. Number three, that God responded in anger to injustice, evil, and sin, and it's okay for us to feel the same. Number four, evidence, anger is evidence that we are concerned with right and wrong. Five, the purpose of anger is to motivate us to positive action that results in a better outcome. So that was week one. Last week, we talked about how to process our anger, especially when it's valid anger, a wrong has been done, and it's been done by someone we're in a relationship with, a neighbor, a coworker, a boss, a spouse, a child, etc. And so we learned the steps of that was one, consciously acknowledging to yourself that you are angry. Just stopping and saying, you know, this really makes me mad. Number two, restraining your immediate response. So not as soon as you get angry, take an action. But stop and hold back what your immediate response would be. Number three, locating the focus of your anger. What or who caused you to feel angry? Number four, analyzing your options. What are my options? I feel angry. What are my options in order to work through this? And number five, once you've thought about it, then taking constructive action. So those are what the last two weeks were. If you missed one, you can jump on podcast if you have any interest. But again, just to um, tell you that all of the information I'm sharing with you comes from the book Anger, Taming a Powerful Emotion by Gary Chapman. And is an excellent book. He has an easy reading style. So he's also the one who authored the five love languages. And so I'm kind of just going through. And as I teach, I'm breaking down the information that he gives in this book. So I do have some direct quotes from his book tonight that I'm going to share. But I just want to give him credit because I'm using material that came directly from his book. Ralph Waldo Emerson said, for every minute that you are angry, you lose 60 seconds of happiness. And so you might be asking, because kind of with the information that I've shared over the past couple weeks, you might be saying, Sister McGee, the way you've been talking about anger and being constructive and lovingly confronting people and it having a positive that God designed it for positive outcomes, if it's so positive, why has it caused so much trouble in our world? But if you go back to the Garden of Eden where everything and all this initial sin happened in the world, we look and see that Satan's main objective and his main purpose has always been to take everything good from God and pervert it, right? He doesn't have to say it's not true. He doesn't have to tell a lie. He can just take and twist it, twist it just enough to make it false. Twist it just enough. You can look at sexuality, 
the way God designed it to be a man and a woman, and you can see how perverse and twisted it's become in our world, what love is considered to be. Those are just some examples. And anger is no different. The enemy uses a lot of different tactics to twist God's intention for human anger. And one way he does that is he purports the idea that all anger is of equal value. That we have a right to be angry no matter whether we have been wronged or if we just perceive that we have been done wrong. There's two kinds of anger I told you we were going to talk about tonight. The first one is definitive anger. Definitive anger is when you have anger because there has actually been a genuine wrongdoing. Something wrong has been done. There has been an injustice, a mistreatment. Something has been done wrong to you. For example, someone steals your stuff, takes your property. Someone tells a lie about you. Someone treats you unfairly. That is where you have definitive anger because there has been something wrong done to you. This anger is valid. And it's the only kind of anger that God ever experiences. Okay? Now, the second kind of anger is distorted anger. And that's anger towards a perceived wrongdoing when actually no wrong has actually occurred. And it may stem from maybe you had an unrealistic expectation. Maybe you're tired. Maybe you're under a lot of stress. Maybe you've been in a bad mood. So you get angry But no moral transgression, no wrong has actually occurred. The situation may have made life inconvenient for us, may have hit an emotional hot spot because of something we experienced in our past, or maybe something happened while we were just tired or stressed. You know, people that say, my word, they really overreacted. You know, maybe it's just they say, oh, that was just the straw that broke the camel's back. You know, it just built up, built up, and they overreact with anger over something so small, but it's because it's been a buildup of stress and fatigue and other things in their life that causes that anger then to erupt. Now, the emotions you feel when it's distorted anger, it's just as intense as the anger you feel when it's definitive anger. But it's actually just in response to something that there is no genuine wrongdoing. Maybe the person frustrated you. Maybe they disappointed you. Maybe they hurt you. Maybe they embarrassed you. But they didn't actually do something wrong. So we're going to break this down a little bit. And I love, love, love how it's expressed and demonstrated in the story of Naaman in Scripture. Now, Naaman was a captain of the host of Syria. The Bible describes him as a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. He had leprosy. And the Syrians had gone and taken captive captives from the land of Israel and among them was a girl who became a maid for Naaman's wife and the girl observed that Naaman had leprosy and she commented and said in so many words it's too bad Naaman's not with our prophet because man he could go get prayed and get healed from this leprosy well when Naaman got wind of it he went to the king and he got permission to travel back over to Israel and see this prophet by the name of Elisha So he packed up gold, he packed up silver, he took his servants and his entourage, and he headed out. Well, upon arrival, Naaman showed up and knocked on the door, told him who he was, that he was the captain of the host of Syria, and he was there to see the prophet Elisha that he heard could heal him of his leprosy. Well, the servant that answered the door went and told Elisha, hey, this man Naaman's here, and he has leprosy, and he needs healed. Well, Elisha did not come out to meet Naaman. He sent his servant back to the door and said, The prophet says, go down to the muddy Jordan, dip yourself seven times, and you will be healed of your leprosy. Now listen to Naaman's response in 2 Kings 5, verse 11 and 12. But Naaman was wroth. He was angry. And went away and said, Behold, I thought he will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and strike his hand over the place and recover the leper. Are not Abana and Farfar rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? May I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. He was mad. First of all, 
He was there. He was, you can just imagine Naaman storming away. And you can, how absurd, how foolish. Doesn't he know who I am? I'm a captain of the host of Israel. He didn't even have enough respect to come out and greet me himself. I mean, that was so rude. He could have showed God's power right then and there. This is so stupid. Unbelievable. Why would I go down to the muddy Jordan? There's all kinds of better rivers than that. And he is just going off. He's in a rage. And in Naaman's mind, he had been done wrong by the prophet. He felt that he had a right to be angry. But let's stop and think for a moment. What did Elisha do? Elisha gave him the cure for his leprosy. He gave him what he asked for. Go wash in the muddy Jordan and you'll be healed. Right? Elisha had actually given him a great gift. But because of his distorted thinking, he ended up with distorted anger. He's ready to stomp back home to Syria and forget all about it. However, thankfully, Naaman had some level-headed servants that talked some sense into Naaman. If we continue on to verse 13, And his servants came near and spake unto him and said, My father, if the prophet had bid thee do some great thing, pretty much in so many words, wouldn't you have done it? How much rather than when he saith to thee, wash and be clean? Then went he down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God. And his flesh came again unto the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. And he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and came and stood before him. And he said, Behold, now I know there was no God in all the earth but in Israel. Now therefore I pray thee, take a blessing of thy servant. He wanted to give him some of his money, but Elisha wouldn't accept it. So these servants confronted Naaman with his anger. And Naaman was wise enough in that moment to stop and listen. To listen to reason. He stopped his rage and listened to reason. He stopped allowing his anger to control his behavior. Then as a result, he experienced healing. But he didn't stop there. He went back to Elisha and gave him honor and thanks pretty much. At first, he was so mad at him. Oh, you've disrespected me. But he went back and said, thank you. You've given me a great gift. So Naaman shows us that distorted anger doesn't have to lead to destructive behavior because all of us are going to feel that type of anger. We get frustrated. We feel like someone's embarrassed us or aggravated us or disappointed us. We feel that type of anger, but it doesn't have to lead to destructive behavior. So then we have to ask the question, okay, number one, how do we identify when our anger is distorted? How do we know? And number two, how do we process that type of anger? Well, if you remember what I already told you, definitive anger, a wrong was actually done, okay? But in distorted anger, a wrong has not actually been done. It's just perceived. Now, how many of you remember our story last week about the boys in the bike? For those that weren't here, I'll summarize real quick. A lady standing on her lawn. And she sees a little boy come by riding a bike. And then she sees this bigger boy come running down the road and take the little boy and set him off the bike. And he gets on the bike and turns around and starts riding it the other way. Well, initially, anger rises up. What a bully. How could he do such a thing? That's terrible. But coming to find out that she didn't have all the facts. That little boy actually saw that bike laying in that bigger boy's yard and decided to take it for a joyride. So the bigger boy was just coming back to reclaim what was rightfully his. But if she had acted on that distorted anger without all the facts, she probably would have made a fool of herself and probably would have had some moms in the neighborhood mad at her too, I'm sure. (laughs) Yeah, it's true. So remember in anger, either type, there's always three things that happen. Number one, there's a provoking event. Something provoked you, made you mad. Number two, your interpretation of that event, what you think actually happened. It's not always what we perceive is what really happens. Oh, I know they are talking about me. I walked up and they stopped talking as soon as I walked up. I know it was about me. I'm mad. Okay, perception. Perception is not always reality. And number three, then we have the rising emotion of anger. Now, here's where the value of step two comes in that we talked about last week, which was restrain your initial response. Because if we stop and restrain our initial response, it gives us a moment to ask questions. What wrong was committed? What did they do wrong? And number two, am I sure that I have all the facts? 
For example, Dr. Chapman says, the person who tends to be a perfectionist will have high expectations, not only for themselves, but for others to whom he relates. When people do not, I just heard him say it's true. When people do not live up to those expectations, he will likely experience anger. Such anger is often distorted anger because the person has committed no wrong. So let me read just an example out of Dr. Chapman's book about Jill, who is highly perfectionist. Jill is highly perfectionistic. Open the drawer of her dresser and you find all of her clothes neatly stacked and color-coordinated. Her closet is no less organized. This pattern for neatness and perfection appears in every aspect of her life. She is married to Jeff, who is highly creative, but neatness and organization are not even in his vocabulary. Jill often becomes angry when she observes Jeff's dirty clothes stuffed in a closet corner. When she sees him looking for a report he completed two weeks ago but now has misplaced, and when she gets inside his car, which hasn't been cleaned since the day he brought it home from the dealer. But Jeff has committed no wrong. Jeff is being the person Jeff has learned to be. He has no inner compulsion towards neatness or organization such as Jill has. I'm not suggesting that Jill's anger is not real. It has the same emotional, physical, and cognitive aspects as definitive anger. She really is upset. She really believes that Jeff is wrong not to be neat. But if she is open to the facts, she will discover that thousands of people have Jeff's personality traits and that these traits are not evil. Jill's anger still needs to be processed, though, in a positive way, but it will help if she can see it for what it is. Her anger is not born out of Jeff's wrongdoing, but out of her own compulsion for neatness and organization. If she can see it as distorted anger, she is far more likely to process it in a positive way. Now, before some of you crucify me, he's not saying that we shouldn't have conversations and say, this bothers me that you're not neat, and I would appreciate it if you could be more so and compromise, etc., etc. But her reason, her reason for being angry is because she has an inner perfectionist compulsion for neatness, right? If she had the personality traits of Jeff that she tended towards more chaos and messy, it wouldn't bother her at all, right? But it bothers her because of her inner compulsion. That's the point I'm trying to make, okay? So, as we start to examine our anger and the things that make us angry, we will see that many times it's distorted anger. It's things that bother us because of us, right? So how do we recognize it? Well, if you answer yes to the two questions, was a wrong committed and do I have all the facts, then yes, you could classify that as definitive anger. A valid wrong has been done and I'm angry. If though, things like disappointment, frustration are feeding the anger and you don't know if you have all the facts, it could be distorted. So then you need to examine the situation and gather more information. So then how do we process the distorted anger? Because those feelings are still very real. I mean, Jill was still upset. She still felt anger. She still needed to deal with that feeling. So number one, you share your information. You share your feelings. In other words, it wouldn't be beneficial for Jill to pass judgment and say, you're just such a disappointment. You're a terrible husband. You're so messy, and it makes me mad. I mean, you know, that's not going to help, right? That's just going to make Jeff angry. But coming across and of course you guys may remember some of this from conversation and drive-through talking and things saying something like you know I'm really feeling hurt disappointed frustrated angry and I need your help okay now when you say something like that this is how I'm feeling and I need your help and what you do is you focus on the event not the person instead of oh it makes me so frustrated that you're so messy it really bothers me when I come in and there's clothes laying in the floor right it's the event not the person, it's the thing. So you share, this is what bothers me. Number two then, you gather information. You've shared information, now you're gonna gather. You've spoken, now you're gonna listen. Because your perception may not be reality. You need to ask questions. When you get all the facts, sometimes your distorted anger then will greatly diminish. Let me give you another example. Meredith and Jason have a quick dinner, and she dashes out the door to attend her evening class. Three hours later, she returns home to find Jason on the couch watching a movie, the dirty dishes still sitting on the table where they left them. 
Meredith goes into anger attack. Thoughts race through her mind. I can't believe this. Watching a stupid movie for three hours and the mess just sits here while I've been working so hard in class. The ants have probably cleaned the plates by now. I just feel like going in there and kicking the television. Well, Meredith has several options. She can conclude that her anger is legitimate, that her husband is a no-good lazy slob, and she can respond to him with bitter words. She can withdraw in silence and then be unresponsive to his efforts towards intimacy later that evening. Or she could try to handle her anger in a more responsible manner. If she understands the difference between definitive and distorted anger, she might ask herself, what wrong has he committed? Now, she may work hard in her mind to see his action or inaction as some sin. If she is successful, she may conclude that his sin is in not loving her. I mean, after all, aren't husbands supposed to love their wives as Christ loved the church? Well, this is certainly not an expression of love. But if she is wise, then she will also ask herself, do I have all the facts? If she is wise enough to ask the question, she'll probably be wise enough to conclude that the answer is no. She does not have all the facts. Therefore, an important step is to get information from Jason as to what happened and why. So Meredith walks over, sits down. Now, this says she gave him a kiss. I don't know that, you know, some people could do that. But she says, I have a small question. Why are there dirty plates still on the table? Oh, babe, I'm sorry, Jason answers. I sat down here to watch a movie. I meant to clean it up when it was over, but the next thing I knew, you were unlocking the door. I don't know how long I slept. I even slept through all the explosions in the film. I must have been asleep for two hours. I'll get the dishes. I'm sorry. I must have been exhausted. He stands, stretches, and goes to the kitchen to begin to clean up. How was your class? Chances are Meredith's anger begins to subside as she realized that Jason's failure to clean up the table was not a sinful act. Sleeping for two hours on the couch is not immoral. It's simply a sign of one's humanity. Gathering information allowed Meredith to release her anger and perhaps be glad that he was able to get some extra sleep. So we realized that he didn't purposely not wash the dishes. He just kind of fell asleep. And then next thing you know, she's home. So you understand these are just examples of situations, right? But just understanding the distorted anger. In her mind, when she walked in the door, he sat there, was awake the whole time, and purposely looked over and never once got up to go do the dishes, when actually that wasn't the case. So this is just about gathering information. Number three, negotiate understanding. Even when the person has done nothing morally wrong, their actions may still cause pain. So you need to have a discussion. So you understand their actions, and then they understand your feelings. And this requires conversation. you got to talk about it, but in a loving, non-judgmental way. And finally, number four, requesting change. You're not demanding change. You're not manipulating for change, but just being honest and open through discussion. You can come to an agreement. And so that's super important. So things that are distorted anger, it's not that you aren't angry. It's just that many times the reason for our anger has to do more with us than something the other person did. But that's how when you're in a relationship with people, you come to understand what they like, what they don't like. They come to learn what you like, what you don't like, what makes you happy, what makes you angry. And that's how you build relationships and you grow closer. Because when you have love for people, you want to do for them. You want to please them, right? Okay. So next, how do people express anger? Normally, most of us. Well, categorize it in two ways. Explosions and implosions. Now, you can go online. You can go to YouTube. I did it myself today. And you can find videos of houses exploding, buildings exploding. Maybe there was a gas leak. There was a fire. And debris goes flying everywhere. And I'm telling you, man, some of those flying projectiles, they are just flying at tens of hundreds of miles an hour, just like, boom, and there they go. And it just rubble, debris, bricks, wood stuff is just exploding outward and onto everything around it. You can also search the web and find videos of what's called a planned explosion or an implosion. 
They want to take down a building, and they want to do it on purpose. It's not an accident. They want to take the building down. And so they set dynamite, and they have detonators, and they're carefully placed. And the way it happens is once they activate it, the building doesn't explode. It implodes on itself. And then all that rubble and all that debris ends up on the inside. So the building still came down, but instead of the debris frying outwards, it all landed inwards. Now, for most of us, probably a pretty good example if you start thinking about how some people handle anger, right? Most of us really haven't done a very good job of learning how to handle it. Some people deal with anger through explosions. They scream, they rant, they rave, everyone hears about it. And some of the people don't even care because they say they are just speaking their mind. They go on a tirade. Sometimes they're throwing things. Sometimes they're stomping. They might punch walls. I mean, sometimes it's a full-on, incredible Hulk rage destroying everything in their path. They take out their anger, sometimes not just verbally, but some people take it to the extent of taking out their anger even physically. So it becomes physical abuse. Now, people who express anger this way, Typically, this is anger and a way to express it that's kind of developed over a lot of years. And usually, this type of anger expression, it doesn't just one day stop. It doesn't just go away with time. Typically, the way that this type of anger is stopped in its tracks is when someone they love, someone that's important to them, pressures them to get help, pressures them to change. Someone that's important to them. Many times, maybe if it's like within a marriage, if you don't change, this marriage is not going to survive. You know what I'm saying? Or a mom that constantly rants and raves and the kid says, you know, I'm old enough now. I'm leaving home. I'm not coming back. We can't have a relationship because of the way that you just rant and rave. And someone important to them that they're worried they're going to lose that relationship many times will then prompt them to make the change necessary so they can maintain that type of relationship and heal. Many times the people that have explosive anger, they have to be held accountable for their anger. And then they have to learn new ways of processing their anger, stopping the abusive patterns. Because explosive anger, where it explodes out, it's never constructive. Because it doesn't just damage the person to whom it's directed, but explosive anger totally destroys the self-esteem of the person who's actually showing the anger. Because when the anger's gone, and they're suddenly left sitting in that room alone, they have so much regret for what I just said and what I just did. That's why you see so many times you hear about the cycle of abuse. I'm so sorry, I'll never do it again. And then they get angry and they do it again, and then they come back down from that, and then I'm so sorry, and it's a cycle. Because they've never been held accountable and never been pressured to stop and learn how to process it in a healthy way. And time doesn't heal it, it just keeps going on in that cycle. And many times the person that's on the receiving end of that type of anger will lose respect for that person, and they'll many times then try to avoid them. Now, at one point, and I read this, and it was so interesting to me because I've actually used this, and I will never use it again because it's been proven not to be effective. But at one point in time in psychology, angry people were encouraged to take their aggression out on punching bags, pillows, golf balls. I mean, I literally have sat in my office and said, hey, if you need to just take it out, I'll bring my boxing gloves and you can just go at it. You know, I'll just hold out the pad. But what they have shown is that venting angry feelings that way, people with aggressive behavior like that, it doesn't drain that anger, but it actually just makes the person more likely to be explosive in the future because they have anger and so how are they expressing it? Through some type of physical expression. And so that didn't really work. And what they found was they needed to do things like take a time out, count to 10 like we talked about, or 100 or 1,000. Take a deep breath. Find a calm place. So I just want to show a quick video, share it with you. Brother Zach, if you would share my video that I have up there tonight. Here's some kids talking about how to calm down from anger. In this week's Super Soul Short, we hear from children who've already learned a life-changing lesson. Taking a deep breath can change your whole world. I don't like it when you say you don't want to play with me. 
When I'm mad, my brain can get a headache and it can start hurting. Your blood keeps pumping because you're like really mad. And you start to get sweaty because you're getting really, really mad. And then when you start getting really mad, you turn red. It's kind of like if you had a jar and then the jar would be your brain and then you put glitter in the jar and that would be how you would feel. If you shook up the jar and the glitter went everywhere, that would be how your mind looks. When I get angry, I feel it in my heart. The amygdala really reacts, but the prefrontal cortex tries to keep it down. When I like feel like I wanna, you know, get really angry and yell, I just like sometimes, you know, like take deep breaths. Like first you find a place where you can be alone, then you find some way to relax and calm down. When I need to calm down, I take deep breaths. I breathe in through my nose. Sometimes I close my eyes or just take deep breaths. It's like it's coming down, it's like not like moving. It's like slowing down and then it stops. And the heart plumps slow and then it goes into your brain. like all the sparkles are at the bottom of your brain. My brain like slows down and then like I feel more calm and then I'm like ready to speak to that, that person. So we know that if we try to have a conversation when we're in that explosive, angry state, it's not going to have a lot of productive outcome. We have to take a moment to calm ourselves so that, as the little girl said, your prefrontal cortex can take over that emotional center and you can go back to having some logic and reason and judgment. Now, when people who get angry do it the other way, when they implode, the explosion happens internally. Their life literally crumbles around their internal anger. Now, this type of anger may not be as easily noticed as the person really tries to hide it. Now, implosive anger, it begins with, like, silence and withdrawal. But left unchecked, it leads to resentment, to bitterness, and can even eventually lead to hatred. There's three characteristics of people who handle anger by implosion. Number one is denial. Number two is withdrawal, and number three is brooding. And we're going to talk about all three. Number one, denial. They deny that they're angry. No, I'm just disappointed. I'm frustrated. And they generally are not truthful with the person they're actually angry with. But denying it does not make it go away, and it will eventually grow until it can't be denied. Withdrawal is the main strategy. They distance themselves. These are the people that give the silent treatment. When asked, is something wrong? Mm, no, what makes you think that? Well, you've been quieter than usual. You haven't talked much tonight. I'm fine. I'm just tired. I had a hard day. And then they walk out. That's an implosion. That's internal anger. Now, withdrawal, it can last. I see smiles. <laughs> I know different people are like, yep, that's me or the person next to me. Anyway. <laughs> That it can last for days or it can last for years. But the truth is, the longer it lasts, the more it festers. And then what happens is, it may begin to be expressed through passive-aggressive behavior. Maybe they're just so mad, but the wife doesn't have a clue. That then she says, asks her hubby to help, can you help me with the kids' baths? He just ignores her and continues checking his email. 
Well, then later on when he makes advances towards his wife, she's mad and feigns a headache. Both passive-aggressive behaviors, and it causes a vicious cycle. And if it's not stopped, their marriage will implode. Withdrawal may also cause the person to redirect their anger. A man is angry with his boss, but he doesn't have any type of confrontation with his boss. But instead, he goes home and takes out his anger on his wife and his kids. This doesn't do anything to deal with the original situation that caused his anger and actually just creates more pain and hurt with his family. Suppressed anger, when it's held inside, not dealt with, not processed, it can cause so many psychological and physiological problems, hypertension, headaches, heart disease, among others. Now, the third characteristic tonight of implosive anger is brooding. Brooding over the events that stimulated the anger. And just ask yourself if this is you. I know I've done this. This person replays the scene in their mind over and over again, analyzing it, spewing back words in their mind they wish they could say or had already said, wallowing in the anger. The anger is not being processed. It's just being regurgitated in their mind. But it's so important that this person gets this anger out, not in a bad way, but if it's maybe talking to a trusted friend, talking to their pastor or a counselor, because otherwise it's going to end up developing into resentment and bitterness. And sometimes if this person is so angry, because people that tend to hold in anger, I'm not talking like maybe one instance happens and they held it in, but if that's their nature, if that's their pattern, then that means every time they get angry, they stuff it in. So it's more anger on top of more anger on top of more anger. And there's more people and more situations and things. And they just keep stuffing it in and stuffing it in and stuffing it in. And they're not dealing with it. And if it doesn't lead them to the point where they become very depressed or a hateful, bitter person, sometimes what happens is the person that always dealt with it through implosion, suddenly at the end of their rope, they explode. And it all comes out. I mean, that's kind of what happens if you look at situations maybe where a student's been bullied in school and they go home and they sulk and they brood and they wallow, but then they're the person that steps back into the school and starts shooting people. They explode. Their anger explodes. Some people internalize their anger, though, and they finally let it out, and it's not good. Maybe there's a husband that's always been just talked about, picked on, his wife treats him terrible, always calls him names, makes fun of him, and he finally has enough and turns on her and destroys her life. And here's the thing about people like that who implode, who always stuff their anger inside, is that at the end of the rope when there's this big explosion that happens, people are saying, I'm shocked. They were the night I never dreamed it. They weren't an angry person like this totally just blows my mind. I can't believe they did this because they can't see the anger festering under the surface because they hold it in. So it's so important we process our anger and not let it build up or drag on. Ecclesiastes 7 and 9 says, Be not hasty in thy spirit to be angry. That first phrase there, be not hasty in thy spirit to be angry. Restrain, ask questions, get all the facts. For anger resteth in the bosom of fools. Now resteth, resides, abides. Fools let the anger remain. It's not, not bad to get angry, but fools just let that anger rest in their bosom, rest in their spirit, reside. They stuff it down. But the wise person will be quick to remove it. I love this quote of all the whole book. This is my favorite quote that Dr. Chapman said. Anger was designed to be a visitor, never a resident. That's powerful to me. Anger was designed to be a visitor. It comes in. It has a purpose. We deal with it. We process it, and then it leaves. It's not supposed to take up residence in us because unresolved anger can lead to hate. It doesn't happen overnight, but over time. People who have hatred in their heart for a person, they actually wish ill upon the person they are angry with. Well, I hope they trip over a crack in the sidewalk and bust their nose. I hope that their car breaks down on the way home. You know, they wish ill upon them. They want something bad to happen to them because they have hatred. They have hatred in their heart. And sometimes, like the examples I mentioned, they, they become the person or the avenue by which that ill or that bad happens. They do it themselves. 
to the person. But in order that to diffuse, to calm implosive anger, we can do a couple of things. Number one, this seems very elementary, but it's just admit it. Say it out. It's true. I hold my anger inside. I find it difficult to share with others that I'm angry. Just say it. Acknowledge it. Because then it's like, whew, wow, I recognize and I'm acknowledging this is how I am. And number two, don't just admit it to yourself. But it's so important that then you reveal it to a trusted family member or a trusted friend, counselor, or pastor. You need to have someone you trust. I'm not talking about posting it on Facebook for everybody and their brother. Oh, you're fine. Everybody does. I'm talking about someone that you can trust to say, you know what? That's great that you've acknowledged it. Let me give you some advice. Let's work through this. What's really been bothering you? You can work through it, and they bring you and help you through the process of coming to a productive outcome. And whenever you're able to take your situation to someone you trust that's going to give you godly advice, it can help you determine if you should lovingly confront the person you're angry at or if it's one of those situations where you just need to release it to God. Okay? Sometimes we have anger that's built up from years past. Maybe you're sitting here tonight and you had some things happen in your childhood and you never had the ability to confront your parents. Most of the time, kids don't get the opportunity to confront their parents, and they never would because you open your mouth and it's just going to get worse. They were mistreated if they had angry parents, if they were at the hands of abuse or whatnot. Um, Maybe the parents fought all the time. They're not going to open their mouth to their parents because then you know what? It's probably just going to get worse on them as a kid in that home, and their life's going to get even more miserable. So then what happens is they carry that anger and that hurt up into adulthood, and they've never really processed it. Maybe you were mistreated in middle school or high school, and you still harbor some type of anger at your old classmates. Maybe you can look back at past relationships, and you were jilted by a girlfriend, a fiancé, a husband, and you're still holding in anger at what they did to you. Unresolved anger will eventually surface. Somehow, some way, it will. Sometimes it's triggered by something in our present, and it causes the emotions to surface unexpectedly. Like, oh my word, they just rose up out of nowhere because something triggered them, something someone said, an event that happened, something you were witness to. And you may not have the ability to go back to your past and confront the person, so it, your only option may be to release it to God. But make no mistake, this doesn't mean the person's being let off the hook because you release it to God. God is merciful, we know that. He will forgive when we repent, we ask for forgiveness. But he's also a God of judgment, and he believes in righteousness. He believes in justice and fairness. Romans 12:19 instructs us in the word, and it says, Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. This scripture says we have to give place to wrath. In other words, we cannot take destructive action because of our anger. It's never our job. It's never our job to make people pay for the wrongs they've done. It's not our job. We don't take it upon ourselves to enact the punishment upon them for their actions. For that matter, if we go back in scripture, you remember the story of the woman who was caught in the act of adultery, right? And all these people, man, they're fixing to just stone her to death. In John 8, 7, Jesus spoke back to the people, and he said, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. We all have sinned. So the only one who truly has a right to bring vengeance is God. Why? Because he never sinned. We don't have the right to cast the stone and enact the punishment because all of us have been on the other end where we have been the cause of someone's anger right? So those who have wronged, they're either going to confess to God and experience forgiveness, or one day they will face God in judgment day for their actions and for their sin. And then he becomes their final and ultimate judge. So when we release it to God, it's in God's hands and we can trust him. Can't we trust him? He's going to take care of it. He's going to take care of it. And here's the thing. If they come to a place in God that they recognize they're wrong and they ask forgiveness and they ask forgiveness of God, aren't we thankful that they came to that place of understanding and recognizing and acknowledging what they did? Then thank God because there for the grace of God go, I, I needed forgiveness from God too. One thing that Dr. Chapman did with someone 
that was experiencing some built-up and long-term anger, one of the exercises he had him do, this is just something practical. He said, I want you to go home. I want you to get alone with a legal pad. And I want you to go back as far as you can remember. And I want you to start writing down the names of the people that wronged you. Because this man had built up anger. And then there was a point in time that his mom passed away and he got depressed. Anyway, his wife had went to see Dr. Chapman for counseling. And then this man came in and he recognized this didn't stem from something in his present. He recognized he had a lot of unresolved anger because of the characteristics and things he was attributing. He said, I want you to write down all the names and all the wrongs that you can remember from childhood up. I don't care how many pages. I just want you to write down the names. If it was your dad, if it was your mom, if it was a boss, if it was, I want you to write it down. And if he could still recall them, especially in detail, then he's probably still had some anger about it. So he did. He, he wrote them all down. He had about three or four pages, and he came in, and Dr. Chapman said, okay, let's start looking them over. And he started saying, hmm, so-and-so did this. He goes, did you ever talk to him about it? Nope, I knew better than to confront my dad. My dad was an angry person, and you just, no, uh-uh, ain't going to do it. Well, what about these things with your mom? Did you confront her? No, mom had been through so much, there was no way I was going to let her know how I felt. I just let it go. She didn't need to deal with that. What about your brother? Well, yeah, we fought about some of this stuff all the time. And so on down the list it went. And what he'd come to realize is out of about 30 people, he'd only processed anger in a healthy way with like two. He just internalized, 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 and finally reached a point in his adult life that was just starting to kind of spill out because it couldn't be suppressed anymore. So he'd done two things. He'd written it down and acknowledged that he had anger towards these people. Number two, he came in and he shared it with a trusted counselor, with someone that he could trust to work through the process. Now he realized that I have internalized this anger, but it was very freeing to share it. Now, for those people on that list that were still alive, he had a choice to make. Do I go back and lovingly confront them, or do I release this to God? And in a lot of instances, he found it was best to release it to God because it was just so far removed in the past. But in some cases, it may have been healthy or beneficial, especially if it was among, like, family that he saw all the time or each year at a family reunion or whatnot. So then for those, though, that maybe had already passed on, maybe there were some people on his list that were dead. There were people that had already died. Or maybe they were impossible to reach. Then he was encouraged, you've just got to release these people to God's hands. So he said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take the names and your list, and I want you to get alone with God. Now, maybe tonight some of you are sitting here, and you have unresolved anger. Maybe you have some things in your past, some hurts, some wrongs, and you still have some anger. And maybe as a child, that was you, and you stuffed down your anger so it didn't make the situation worse. Maybe you were afraid it would cause more anger and abuse if you spoke up. And maybe for some of you, it's still festering to this day. So the way I want to close it tonight is I'd like you to stand. Brother Mason, if you wouldn't mind to play something softly on the keyboard. I want you to take a moment, and I just want you to close your eyes. And I want you to begin to think about and start asking yourself, is there people in my life or in my past that I still have anger towards? If I start thinking about the situation, if I start thinking about what they said, if I start thinking about what they did, that anger just comes back and I feel my hand clenching up, I feel my chest getting tight because I still have anger. So I'm going to take a moment and I just want you to keep your eyes closed and I want to read to you the way that Dr. Chapman said that he asked this man to process this anger in releasing these people to God. He said, I want you to get alone with God with your list. I want you to read each name and each offense to God. I want you to read it aloud. Then say to God, you know what my father did. He did this, and he did this, and this. And you know how wrong it was, God, for a father to do these things to a child. And you know how much they hurt me. They've been inside all these years. But today, God, I want to release my father and all these wrongs to you. You are a just God, and you are a loving God. You know everything about my father. I don't know what motivated him to do these things, 
You know his motives as well as his actions. And so I want to put him in your hands and let you take care of him. Do whatever you wish. Whatever is good. Whatever is loving. I put him in your hands. And I release all these wrongs to you. Knowing that if he confesses them, you will forgive him. If not, you will deal with him on these matters. But I release them and I give them to you today. And then he said, I want you to go through your whole list, sir, everyone's name and everyone's actions, and I want you to release them to God, one by one, wrong by wrong. I said, release them to God. Once you've done that, then I want you to thank God that all these things are now released to him. And I want you to ask God to fill your life with his spirit and give you the power to be the man he wants you to be in the future. And ask him for the ability to go forward processing anger in a healthy way when it occurs. Because people are going to do you wrong. But you want to be able to process it in a healthy way. So if you're sitting here today, maybe this is something that you need to do. Maybe you've got some anger towards people in your life. And so if we could, could we just find a place to pray here at the end just for a few minutes. And just take a moment and say, God... I realize I've got anger at this person and I need to release them to you. God, they're not being let off the hook. You're a just God. If they never repent, then you're going to take them and they're going to find judgment someday. But God, you are also a loving and merciful God who's forgiven me of many faults, many mistakes that I've done. And God, if they find a place of repentance, I pray God that your forgiveness and mercy would flow into their life. The best way to release anger towards someone is to pray for them. God, help me to see them as you see them. God, give me your eyes. God, help me, Lord, to heal from this anger. I release it to you. Can you talk to him tonight? Can we talk to him and begin to just ask God, Lord, I release them to you. I give it to you, God. I don't want to carry this burden, this weight of anger anymore, God, but I give it to you, Lord. Take it from me. God, help me, Lord, to forgive. Help me, God, to move forward, God. If I don't forgive others, God, I can't receive your forgiveness in my own life. God, shape me. Make me more like you, God. Help me, Lord Jesus, to move past the anger and the things that have held me captive and bound, God. Lord, search me and know me. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any wicked way in me, God. Lord, lead me in your ways, God, I pray. Hallelujah. Can we just pray tonight? God, we need you, Jesus. Take a moment and talk to him tonight. Thank you for listening. If you would like more information about our services and activities, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter with the username FACMC. Again, that's FACMC. Thank you and have a blessed day.